Welcome to Music History Monday for May 3rd, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is The Words The Thing, Betty Comden and Adolph Green. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. May 3rd is a date rich in birthdays for American popular music. Let us acknowledge three of them before moving on to the particular birthday that has inspired this post. On May 3rd, 1919, 102 years ago today, the American folk singer and songwriter Pete Seeger was born in New York City. Seeger was the prototypical American folk singing left-wing social activist, a man and a musician allied with the working class and workers' rights. He was blacklisted during the McCarthy era only to reemerge as an important singer of protest music in the 1960s in the service of the anti-Vietnam War movement, the civil rights movement, international disarmament, the environment, and whatever might be considered the counterculture at any given time. As a prominent voice and songwriter on the radio in the 1940s and founding member of the Weavers in 1948, Seeger created a body of music that remains the backbone of the folk repertoire, including such songs as Where Have All the Flowers Gone, If I Had a Hammer, the Hammer Song, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine, and Turn, Turn, Turn. He died an American legend on January 27, 2014, at the age of 94. On May 3, 1933, 88 years ago today, the American singer, songwriter, dancer, musician, record publisher, and band leader James Brown was born in Barnwell, South Carolina. In the mid-1960s, Brown created a signature dance music that synthesized soul, bebop jazz, and rhythm and blues a sort of music that featured heavy, repeated licks in the bass and emphasized the first beat of every measure, which Brown himself called the one. Dubbed funk, Brown was embraced as the man, the godfather of soul, Mr. Dynamite, and soul brother number one. Hey, nobody danced or moved like James Brown. He was the Fred Astaire of soul, the Mikhail Baryshnikov of funk. One look at Brown on stage explains where Michael Jackson got 95% plus or minus of his moves. James Brown died on December 25th, 2006 in Atlanta, Georgia. On May 3rd, 1934, 87 years ago today, the American singer Frankie Valli, born Francesco Stephen Castelluccio, was born in Newark, New Jersey. As someone who grew up in South Jersey in the 1960s, I would tell you that Valli was 
the Jersey Boy, and his voice was the Jersey sound of the 60s, just as Frank Sinatra, 1915 to 1998, born in Hoboken, New Jersey, was the Jersey Boy and voice 20 years before, and Bruce Springsteen, born 1949, in Long Branch, New Jersey, 20 years later. Along with fellow Jersey Boys Tommy DeVito, Nicholas Massey, and Bob Gaudio, who was born in the Bronx but raised in Bergenfield, New Jersey, Valley founded The Four Seasons in 1960. Valley, with his unusually powerful falsetto voice, was the lead singer. To this day, hearing Valley sing such classics as Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, and Ragdoll brings back the best of my childhood, the Brunswick Bowling Alley in Willingboro, New Jersey, the Steel Pier in Atlantic City, the Jersey Shore at Beach Haven on the southern tip of Long Beach Island. Finally, we note the birth on May 3, 1917, 104 years ago today, of the American actress, singer, lyricist, playwright, and screenplay author Betty Comden, born Basia Cohen in Brooklyn, New York. We are going to use Ms. Comden's birthday as all the excuse we need to examine the career of one of the greatest writing teams in the history of Broadway and the movies, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, 1914 to 2002. Words and Music. Over the years, I have written about lyricists and librettists here on Patreon. Posts on Mozart's operas, Don Giovanni and the Marriage of Figaro, necessitated discussing the librettist Lorenzo de Ponti. We have talked about Richard Strauss's librettist, Hugo von Hofmannsthal, in discussions about Strauss's operas, Salome and Electra. Posts on George Gershwin and Richard Rogers have mentioned Gershwin's principal lyricist, Ira Gershwin, and Rogers' principal lyricists, Lorenz Hart and Oscar Hammerstein II. As recently as March 15 and 16th of this year, posts of the musical My Fair Lady delved deeply into the working relationship between the composer Fritz Lowe and the lyricist Alan J. Lerner. But until today, I have never dedicated an entire post just to authors and lyricists to which we should all be saying it's about time. It is about time. That's because in almost all operas and for most musical shows and songs, the words come first. And to the best of my recollection, we've not yet discussed in detail what this means to the creation of an opera or a song. Many years ago, I read an interview with the author Norman Mailer 1923 to 2007. He was asked what was easier for him to write, fiction or nonfiction. His answer was most illuminating. He responded with something on the lines of, are you kidding? Nonfiction, of course. He went on to explain that with nonfiction, the story is already there. All one need do is tell it effectively. He pointed out that writing fiction was another ball of wax entirely. Nothing is given, and the story and its antagonists 
must be drawn from the ether and constructed from scratch. Ask a composer what is easier to compose, instrumental music or vocal music, and you will get the same response. Are you kidding? Vocal music, of course. That's because when setting a text in a piece of vocal music, the story is already there. All a composer has to do is create music that resonates with his or her interpretation of the story. Even more, when writing vocal music, the rhythms of the vocal line and its melodic contour are already in place. The rhythms of the words will become the rhythms of the vocal line, and the natural declamative rise and fall of the words will become the contour of the vocal melody. Hey, I would tell you among the surest signs of a compositional fraud is a vocal line that fights the natural rhythms and contour of the words, a vocal line that consequently obscures rather than heightens the meaning of the words. What a librettist, that's someone who writes the words to an opera, and a lyricist, someone who writes the words to a song, delivers then is much more than merely words. What a librettist and lyricist actually deliver is, one, a story, two, the approximate rhythms in which it will be declaimed, and three, the approximate melodic contour with which it will be sung. Writing a good libretto or lyric is a high and highly disciplined art for a number of reasons. One, the words must sing. Vowels, consonants, and sibilants that might sound just fine when juxtaposed in spoken language can often sound incredibly awkward when sung. A good lyric must literally roll off the tongue. Two, a librettist or lyricist must leave room for the music and therefore must say what needs to be said with a compactness and clarity that goes far beyond poetry in general. A great librettist, a great lyricist, must exercise exquisite editorial discipline when writing and must always be cognizant of how long it takes to sing something. A line of dialogue that can be spoken in a matter of seconds will, if set to music, take many times longer to sing. For example, Arrigo Boito, 1842-1918, created the superb libretto for Giuseppe Verdi's opera Othello of 1887. In adapting Shakespeare's Othello of 1603 for the opera stage, Boito was ruthless in his editing. He cut Shakespeare's five-act drama into a four-act opera, and in doing so reduced Shakespeare's word count from 26,450 words to a roughly 9,000-word libretto. Yet the opera packs, at very least, the same kick-in-the-gut dramatic punch and power as does Shakespeare's play because of Verdi's music. 3. Librettists and lyricists must accept a painful truism that would be entirely unacceptable to a playwright or a poet. For all their talent, ambition, and ego, librettists and lyricists 
must accept that they are not equals in their artistic partnership with the composer, that in the end it is the music that makes an opera or a song and not its words. The inequality of the relationship between composer and wordsmith is made clear by the nature of their working relationship, in which composers routinely demand changes to pre-existing texts or new texts entirely, whereas I am unaware of a single instance of a librettist or lyricist demanding a new musical setting. Four, in the case of a stage play or a poem, the playwright and the poet are the dramatists in that performers and readers of their work are interpreting the stories, the poetry, as written by the playwrights and poets. However, in the case of an opera or a song, it is the composer who is the dramatist, because it is the composer who has intensified the written word by setting it to music. Performers then interpret the words and music as construed by the composer. This rather lengthy exposition recognizes then the seminal importance librettists and lyricists play in creating the story and shaping the rhythms and melodic contours of an opera or song, and paradoxically, and perhaps unfairly, the degree to which composers eclipse, sometimes almost entirely, their collaborators. Cases in point, quick, off the top of your heads, who wrote the words for Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio? Christoph Friedrich Bretzner, Verdi's Aida, Antonio Dislanzoni, Puccini's Turandot, Renato Simoni and Giuseppe Adami, Leonard Bernstein's On the Town, that would be Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Betty Comden. Comden was born Basia Cohen in Brooklyn, New York on May 3rd, 1917, 104 years ago today. Her father, Leo Cohen, was a lawyer and her mother, Rebecca, a school teacher. She attended Erasmus High School at 911 Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn and then studied drama at NYU, graduating in 1938. By the time she graduated NYU at the age of 21, this aspiring actress had already taken some major career steps. She had changed her last name from Cohen to the more ethnic-neutral Comden. She had had a nose job to assure herself a more ethnic-neutral appearance. She had become involved in a theater troupe called the Washington Square Players and had met and befriended an aspiring actor named Adolf Green. Adolf Green was born in the Bronx on December 2nd, 1914 to Helen Weiss-Green and Daniel Green, who had immigrated from Hungary. After graduating from high school, Green worked as a runner on Wall Street, but what he really wanted was to be an actor. Although he neither changed his name nor got rhinoplasty, he too became involved in Greenwich Village's Washington Square Players, where he met the newly minted Betty Comden in 1937 or 1938. Comden and Green hit it off immediately, although we should note that their relationship was never a romantic one. 
They would marry others and raise families, yet remain the closest of working partners until Green died in 2002, some 65 years after they met. In 1938, not long after they met, Comden and Green decided to create their own cabaret act, which they called the Reviewers. The other members of the troupe were Alvin Hammer, John Frank, and a young woman named Judith Tuvim, 1928 to 1965. For our information, Tuvim means good in Yiddish. This young lady grew up in Sunnyside, Queens. Judith did not require a nose job, but she did change her last name to Holiday. It was as Judy Holiday that she won a Best Actress Oscar and a Golden Globes Award in 1950 for her performance in the motion picture Born Yesterday. Somehow, Betty Comden and Adolph Green managed to convince Max Gordon, the owner of the famed nightclub The Village Vanguard in Greenwich Village, that the reviewers would be, quote, good for business, unquote. Even more amazing is that they were correct. The reviewers opened at the Vanguard in 1939, performing laugh-out-loud sketches and operatic parodies of their own creation with such titles as The Banshee Sisters and The Baroness Bazooka. The troupe was frequently accompanied by a young pianist-composer that Betty Comden met in 1937 when they were counselors together at a summer camp, a guy named Leonard Bernstein. 1918-1990. The reviewers caught the eyes and ears of Hollywood, and thinking that their big break was at hand, Comden Green and the company headed west to appear in a movie entitled Greenwich Village, starring Carmen Miranda and Don Amici. Alas, their portion of the film ended up on the cutting room floor, and Comden and Green returned to New York and resumed writing sketches and parodies and performing at the Village Vanguard and other local clubs. Thank goodness they came home to New York, because that's where their big break did indeed take place. On April 18, 1944, a ballet named Fancy Free opened at the old Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. With music by Comden and Green's erstwhile accompanist Leonard Bernstein, and choreography by Jerome Robbins, 1918 to 1998, the ballet was a hit. It was decided that Fancy Free should be turned into a full-blown Broadway musical, and Bernstein knew just the people to write the book, the show's script, and its lyrics. His old pals, Betty Comden and Adolph Green. On the Town opened on December 28, 1944 at the Adelphi Theater, and it was a smash hit, all of which will be discussed in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes Post. On the Town made Comden and Green. Returning to Hollywood, they co-authored a string of hits, capped off with the story and screenplay for Gene Kelly's classic Singin' in the Rain, of 1952 and the screenplay for Anti-Mame in 1958. Along with Bernstein's songs from On the Town, Comden and Green, working with composer Julius Julie Stein, 1905 to 1994, wrote the lyrics for some of the great American songbook's most 
enduring songs, including Just in Time, Make Someone Happy, and The Party's Over. Altogether, Comden and Green wrote the books and often the lyrics for 19 shows and 10 movies. For over 60 years, their working method hardly varied. According to Comden, they met daily, usually in her living room, either to work on a show or a movie or just to shoot the breeze. In an interview with the New York Times, conducted in 1977, Comden described it this way, quote, We stare at each other. We meet, whether or not we have a project, just to keep up a continuity of working. There are long periods when nothing happens, and it's just boring and disheartening. But we have a theory that nothing's wasted, even those long days of staring at one another. You sort of have to believe that, don't you? That you had to go through all that to get to the day when something did happen." Unquote. Thankfully, both Betty Comden and Adolph Green lived long enough to be praised, honored, awarded, and rewarded by a grateful public. Comden died in New York City on November 23, 2006, at the age of 89. Green likewise died in New York City on October 23, 2002, two months shy of his 88th birthday. Tomorrow, and Dr. Bob prescribes, we'll return to Betty Compton and Adolph Green, now in the company of Leonard Bernstein for the creation of Fancy Free and On the Town. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com. Dot com.